Welcome, everyone. I'm here with Brad Torgerson, uh, science fiction, fantasy, and not, you don't really, like, yeah, I always say this, I always screw this up. I always, um, I said the same thing to DJ Butler, but he does apparently does write some horror. I was going to say, you don't really write any horror, do you? No, I didn't no. Think so. I, I've done exactly one horror story, and it was a collaboration with uh, a neighbor um, who does know horror very well. He's a horror, a horror aficionado, but yeah, it's not really, that's not my bailiwick. Okay, so why don't we start with, um, why don't you tell the audience about, a little bit about your background, where you're from, um, and then how you got into writing. Okay, uh, born and raised in uh, northern Utah, and uh, was always a science fiction geek as a kid. Um, my very first work uh, that was for public uh, consumption in science fiction was not paid work. It was way back in 1992. So in 1992, uh, local community radio station KRCL FM in Salt Lake City. Uh, on Sunday nights, uh, Scott Howard was his name. Scott Howard was the host for a uh, show called Variables, which was a music show. But it was uh, mostly electronic music, soundtracks, some other things. Um, he, he started doing a kind of homespun radio serial in the tradition of the old radio serials from uh, way back called Searcher and Stallion. And that, that was exactly the concept of the show. It was a far future uh, human male who had lost his memory and he was trying to find out who he was and what his place in the galaxy was. And he had this robotic companion, a companion that was always alluded to be kind of like a robotic horse. And they went on adventures together. Well, he'd been producing this uh, himself with Kendall Jackman and uh, a, a few other people, uh, purely uh, a, a, like a for fun, right? It, it, it was, it started out kind of small for fun and then they kind of got a little bit, bit better at it. And each week you could, you could see it was getting more and more sophisticated. Well, after about eight or nine months of doing this thing, um, I, uh, through the old dial-up bulletin board systems, um, was in touch with Scott and I just, I said, hey, I, I would love to write for this thing. I've been enjoying it. I've been enjoying your show for years for the music, but I would love to write for this Searcher and Stallion thing explicitly. Um, now I had always dabbled in fan fiction of various kinds, uh, Star Trek fan fiction, uh, you know, the Road Warrior. I'd always loved the Mel Gibson, Mad Max movies, you know, but this was a chance for me to, to kind of take it a little more seriously. So I showed him some of my stuff and he said actually that this would be cool why don't you give it a try i ended up writing 12 episodes for him again this was community radio if you know community radio you know it's a it's it's a homespun labor of love and that's what this show was but that was my first very public thing now um since i've been publishing professionally it's been neat going to places like salt lake city comic-con and meeting fans who go oh you you actually wrote for search and stallion way back in the day so people around utah still remember that uh, so that was my first thing in, but two things happened at once. I was doing that in 92, and at the same time, I was getting into bestseller Larry Niven. Now, I'd never read Larry Niven before 92, but mm -hmm. I had purchased uh, two of his uh, short story treasuries, uh, Playgrounds of the Mind and End Space. Again, didn't know Larry from a hole in the ground. Um, had always been a fan of authors like uh, Alan Cole and Chris Bunch and Orson Scott Card and um, uh, things like that, but, uh, had never heard of Larry. I think I want to say, and th this is my, my ill-spent youth. I want to say in the back of a penthouse magazine, I saw a, a book club ad and it had 
Larry Niven's stuff in there. And I just remembered that when I went to a bookstore a few weeks later, having finished the latest, it was like a Larry Bond novel, or maybe it was Dale Brown. I liked techno thrillers too. And I picked up these Larry Niven books. And so I'm reading Larry Niven and I'm writing these episodes for Searcher and Stallion. And at some point in my brain, I just realized, hey, Larry gets paid to do this. And I'm kind of doing it too, but I'm not getting paid. I wonder how much harder I'd have to work to get paid for it. Well, the answer to that was way harder. Uh, so I spent from 93 to 2009, what's that, like 16 years? Um, 16 or 17 years sending a lot of short fiction, very badly written short fiction to the magazines like Analog, Fantasy and Science Fiction, Asimov's, you name it. I got hundreds of rejection letters um, along the way, very discouraged. Uh, it definitely wasn't like hammering consistently every single year. There were some real dry spells in there when I was very discouraged. And my wife had to kind of talk me around again in 2005. I remember especially uh, uh, we had been married um, over 10 years at that point. We were living in Washington state in Tacoma. I joined the military uh, a few years earlier and, and she was like, I can tell you're really kind of like not in a good headspace. And I said, yeah, I'm kind of not. And she says, well, are you still writing? I mean, I haven't seen you send anything out of the mail in a while. What's going on? And so I said, I don't know. Maybe I just suck at this. I can't do it. I, I never get published. No one ever buys my stories. But the closest I had come at that point to publishing was uh, Dean Wesley Smith um, mm -hmm. had been editing a series of uh, uh, books uh, for the same publisher that does the uh, Star Trek or at that time was doing the Star Trek paperbacks and it's called Strange New Worlds and it was basically Star Trek fan fiction that was legitimately published and and people got paid for it so I had sent three or four stories to that and a couple of them came close or at least Dean's little notes on the rejection letters said hey this one came close so that's as close as I'd ever gotten and as, as encouraging as that was it was also infuriating because I thought man I'm just not, maybe I just can't do this. I suck. I, I, I'm no good. I, I can't do this. But my wife talked me around and convinced me to try some different things. She said, well, you know, maybe you need to try a different style or you need to innovate with your writing. And one of the things I did deliberately do was, um, so I had, like most people, read predominantly novels uh, of all kinds. Again, techno thrillers. I'd read as a teenager, the Thomas Covenant Chronicles 1 and 2 by Stephen R. Donaldson. I'd read The Belgariad and Malorian by David Eddings. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, again, Chris Bunch and Alan Cole in the Sten series, which I was a big fan of and, and really enjoyed a lot. I'd read Orson Scott Card, of course. Everyone reads Ender's Game, especially if you're in Utah, because he was you know, wildly famous and uh, very well thought of in Utah. Um, so then I... Uh, I said, okay, I'm going to break away from writing in novel style, and I'm going to go first person, um, which is really hard to do at novel length. But for for, for short fiction, it 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 clicked for me in a way um, that I didn't expect. Uh, other things I did was I actually started. So I'm one of those people who, in the '90s and uh, uh, pretty much through the '90s, had 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 devoured all the how to write books books. Um, <laughs> especially, you know, the ones there's, I, was it, I, I don't even know if they exist anymore. Was it Writers Weekly? I forget who the, who it was. They, they cranked out a slew um, of how to write books, books. Writers Market. Yes. Okay. Thank you. I have, one, I have one on my shelf right over there. Oh, okay. So I, okay. Yeah. I, I still have a couple uh, on my shelf as well, but uh, 
yeah, I devoured every single how to write books books uh, that I could get my hands on. Um, but I, I stopped doing that and I actually went to my first, um, at least in Washington, my first scientific fiction convention uh, over at the apple tree near the airport. I forget what the convention was called. Um, but there was a few notable authors there that that weekend and I, I sat on the panels and listened to them talk and, you know, it was kind of inspiring and kind of motivating and, um, you know, I, I was able to ask some questions and talk to a few people. So that was something else I'd never done before. Or actually, I take it back. I'd gone once to a local science fiction convention in Salt Lake City once um, back during the Searcher and Stallion days. And it was the funniest panel ever because there were more people on the panel than there were in attendance because nobody knew who we were because the topic of the panel was locally produced radio science fiction, which, no, <laughs> you know, so we, we had like four people in the audience and there was eight of us on the panel. So I got to go to that. And, and then, and that was in 93. So from 93 to 2007, I hadn't attended any writer events, hadn't done any workshops. Um, I, I had done a writer's group in Seattle briefly, I want to say in the year 2000. And I, I, I'm struggling to remember what the writer's group was called. It was about a half dozen people. And uh, um, uh, I don't think anybody ever broke out of that group that I can remember but I can't remember names either. So I could be wrong on that. Maybe, maybe people eventually did. Uh, I didn't do it for very long because it felt too much like, how do I say it without being unkind? It, it felt too much like people were writing for the group as opposed to writing for an audience, a real audience. And I wasn't convinced that everybody, you know, since nobody in that group had ever broken in professionally, I wasn't convinced that they knew how to teach me how to break in professionally either. So I left the group after a little while. Um, so that never really worked for me. But anyway, as of 2009, I finally broke in finally after a lot of years uh, through Writers of the Future. People may or may not be familiar with uh, the Writers of the Future contest. Um, I had been guided to it by Dean Wesley Smith, who again, uh, had almost published a couple of my stories for his uh, well, Star just, Trek Strange. Just explain, explain to the audience exactly, like kind of exactly what it is. And, um, right, is the future? Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So long story short, um, so the Dave Wolverton, who died recently, unfortunately, um, uh, bestseller Dave Wolverton, a.k.a. Dave Farland, David Farland, um, uh, was the coordinating judge for a, uh, a contest, uh, basically, that you submit your stories as an amateur. They are blindly judged uh, because they take your name off it. And the story itself has to sell itself to the coordinating judge who used to be Dave. And then Dave would kind of pick off the cream off of that uh, in his estimation. And he would pass that on to the other judges, um, such notables as Anne McCaffrey used to judge, uh, Jerry Pornell before he died used to judge, Larry Nevin still judges, I believe. Brandon Sanderson is a recently installed judge. Um, so the judges were, were kind of a who's who in science fiction and fantasy. Um, uh, so they would pass those stories. You know, Kevin J. Anderson, he's, he's a very notable judge. So your stories, um, if they made the call, the initial cut would get passed on to those judges who would then, I think they were getting eight to 10 a quarter. And then they would rank them, you know, uh, you know, kind of do a preference ranking. I don't know exactly how the voting worked, but if you were in the top three, you had won. And uh, <coughs> excuse me, pardon me. You. I apologize. Um, uh, 
and then they would do that every quarter. And once they had uh, four quarters of stories, they would do a, a anthology called the Rides of the Future number XXX, you know, whatever year it happened to be. My year was 26. By the time I won, uh, it was year 26. Now I had entered a few years prior, but I'd never gotten anything other than an honorable mention. Writers of the Future um, still, to my knowledge, does a, a cool thing. I mean, it's, it's the neatest rejection letter you'll ever see. It's very fancy. It's all colorful. And it's, I think it's even embossed, if I remember correctly. But it's, yeah. it's, it's delightful. It says, you know, you were in the top 10% if you were an honorable mention. And then they have a thing up from that called Silver Honorable Mention. And then there's semi-finalist. And then there's finalist. And then you're a winner. Uh, a first, second, or third place winner. Well, um, after getting uh, one finalist almost across the finish line in, uh, I want to say, summer of 2009, it did not win. I was crushed. Yes, uh, I was. Con I was more convinced than ever that once you know when that story didn't make it, I was like, this is the best thing I've ever written, <laughs> and it still didn't make it. Uh, you know, and again, my wife had to kind of talk me off the ledge, and and you know, we had a heart to heart over the over the dinner table um so i kept sending stories in and two quarters later i finally had a winner cross the finish line and i was thrilled uh, i still remember getting that phone call um from joni labaki the 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 administrator and she called me i was i think i was in a, i was like in a carl's jr drive-in at, at work you know i'd taken off lunch for work and and i get this phone call from from her and she's like you've won finally and so i was thrilled and it it just you know literally it was it was uh, a, a, just a colossal, almost a relief because uh, again, I'd been despairing of ever cracking the nut. I just couldn't do it. I'd been trying for so long. I mean, this is 16, 17 years of, you know, no bueno. It's like, am I ever going to be able to do this? So finally one with a story called Ex Anastasis um, mm -hmm. that was a, a kind of a post-apocalyptic resurrection story. Um, I was a third place winner, which didn't bother me at all. I, I was just happy to have won. And then uh, 60 days later, the original finalist uh, story called Outbound, which had almost made the cut but didn't, I had sent that. As soon as I found out I'd won with Ex Anastasis, I sent Outbound to Dr. Stanley Schmidt at Analog Magazine and said, hey, Dave Farland thought this was a good story. It almost made it. Could you use it for Analog? I'm a recent winner. Um, I got, uh, it was kind of funny because I, I sent it to Stan and then a few weeks later, it was, I want to say it was January, 2010, I got my little self-addressed stamp envelope in the old days, you would send them a self-addressed stamp envelope so they could send their rejection to you. And I get the thin little self-addressed stamp envelope and I'm thinking, oh, it's another rejection. And I open the thing up and I pull out the half sheet of paper, which is what all the analog rejections back then were always these little half sheets of paper. And I was expecting rejection. And at the top, it said, yeah, I can see why Dave Overton liked this story. I like it, too. I'm going to buy it. And the top of my head blew off um, because not only had I sold the story, but this was the first time I had you know, competed in the real world, so to speak. Writers of the Future is deliberately meant to be an amateur event. You can't compete in it if you've already been published and, and are already working in the business. Analog is... Analog is a big deal. For me, it was a big deal because I knew Larry Niven had published there a lot. Um, Orson Scott Card had published there a lot. Uh, heck, George R.R. R. Martin, um, you know, had published there in the early days. So a, a great many 
big and venerable and very famous people had published an analog. And so for me to finally break in with analog from whom I had like 40 rejection letters at that point was a, a colossal big deal. Um, I guess Outbound sufficiently impressed Stan enough that when I sent him additional stories, he bought them. Um, uh, Outbound also ended up getting later, I'm, to, I'm trying to remember the sequence of events. Later in the year, I got word that Outbound after it had reached print um, won the Reader's Choice Award for its category. So I'm not only a brand new Writers of the Future winner, but my very first story in Analog Magazine got uh, what's called the AnLab for its category. It was a novelette. So the top of my head blows off again. Uh, I got to go to the, uh, the Nebula Awards in, excuse me, I want to say 2011 um, uh, and uh, shared a room with Eric James Stone when he won his Nebula. Uh, Eric is another Utah writer who publishes an analog a lot and a uh, really wonderful writer. I like Eric a great deal. Um, but yeah, at, I, event... I interviewed, I interviewed him, I think last week. Oh, okay. So, okay. so the episode appeared, was it today? Yeah. The episode appeared today. Oh, okay. So yeah. coincidence then. So, yeah. so I, I was rooming with Eric for, for when he got his nebula, but I got to go down to the breakfast and receive my, uh, my certificate uh, and big smiles for the for the story that had won the Reader's Choice Award in Analog, and that wasn't the first one I would, or I should say, that wasn't the only one I won. I, to date, I've won three um, in Analog, uh, which of which I'm very proud. Uh, those stories have gotten me a lot of great uh, attention. Um, I, I think it was part of the reason that uh, Bain Books had interested in me and decided to to you know to pick up the very first book I sold to them was called The Chaplain's War. And it was mm -hmm. based on two prior pieces of short fiction that I put into analog. They shared the universe, they shared the characters. Um, and then I had I'd done what Mike Resnick, my writing mentor, Mike Resnick used to call a fix-up book from the old days when you would take your pieces of short fiction that shared a universe and you would expound upon them and blow them up into a full novel. So that's what I did with uh, The Chaplain's War. Um, I still get really nice reader mail on the chaplain's war i'm very proud of that book uh since then i've published other things both stories and uh uh, uh books um i, I recently finished a, a three book collaboration with craig martell um i was really excited about uh called the xenophobia series z-e-n-o um which is uh i was able to riff a little bit so i've i've I had an opportunity a few years ago to do a, a novella uh, for Larry Niven's known space series, The Manxin Wars. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I was able to riff a little bit on that because uh, the, the xenophobia, uh, the first three books anyway, are, are pretty much, um, it's, it's, a, it's an archeological adventure combined with far future uh, mystery, you know, the earth is lost to time and space and, but there's legends, right? There's legends and you have competing worlds of humanoids that are not human. They're humanish with animal characteristics and they each have creation myths that play into their politics that play into war and conquest. And you have literally a, a heretic, a hero uh, who decides that he's going to go find the truth and he has to adventure and you know, go, go, go to these secret archives where all this information is kept secret and stored away from the public because none of these worlds want to admit that, you know, their, their creation myth, their version of the truth is not the truth, you know, so he's seeking to kind of overturn the conventional wisdom. And along the way, uh, there's, you know, hijinks, it's a, it's kind of a, uh, a dirty dozen kind of outfit. 
And uh, so I, I released that with Craig uh, back in, I think, November, December, and January. We released the books in, in concert. So those are out now. Uh, one of my novels for Bane, uh, A Star Wheeled Sky, did win the Dragon Award from Dragon Con back in 2019. That was a lot of fun. I, I had a moment there where, uh, you know, Larry Niven, who I had esteemed for many, many years because he kind of put my feet on the path of doing hard science fiction. I had loved his short fiction, eagerly devoured all his, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the known space series, uh, the integral trees worlds. Uh, there's two books in that. I wish he would have finished the third one. Uh, he had done stuff in what he called the state universe, which was part of the integral trees. Um, I, I had read uh, uh, most of the stuff he'd done with Jerry Pornell, like the, uh, the boat in God's eye and the follow-up mm -hmm. to that. Um, I'd also uh, read their Inferno books, their, their number one and number two books, uh, Footfall. Uh, you know, if it was Niven and somebody else, I just read it and loved it. So to have Larry Niven on the stage in 2019, call my name out, best science fiction novel, Brad R. Torgerson, Star Wheeled Sky, I just kind of flipped my lid and and I had nothing prepared because I was going up against Kim Stanley Robinson and some other super quality authors who were award-winning, very well-known. Um, mm -hmm. I, I didn't expect to get to get the win. And so when I did, and especially to have Larry be the guy smiling and holding my trophy and saying, you know, congratulations, young man, even though I was not young, <laughs> that was, that was, uh, that was uh, tremendously gratifying. Um, that was definitely like a, one of those moments I'll always remember uh, because you, you don't get to have your heroes give you a, an award uh, and, and say, you know, congratulations and shake your hand. And, and uh, th that was just a huge thrill. Um, uh, you know, what's coming for the future? I don't know. I, I, I've been, I've been thinking seriously about that. Uh, everybody is all uh, agog at Brandon Sanderson and his colossal $25 million Kickstarter for bonus books that he wrote during the COVID panic. And so everybody in Utah obviously is talking about that because Brandon is, is far and away the most successful uh, mm -hmm. uh, Utah writer, probably maybe ever at this point with that kind of money. Uh, you know, but it's not really all going to hit. Like he has to put together a bunch of oh, packages yeah. oh, and, he's do it and things like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, Brandon is an industry unto himself, um, and he's kind of been that way from the time I first met him, which was so. There's a local science fiction and fantasy symposium in Utah called Life, the Universe, and Everything that uh, typically goes on in February. And I had first met Brandon when I was a new Writers of the Future winner in. I want to say it was 2010, February 2010. And so I've, I, I'm not buddies with the guy. I can't make that claim, but we, we know each other and we, we bumped into each other at plenty of these things and, and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, Brandon is mortal to me, right? Like, mm -hmm. it's not like JK Rowling where she's this kind of otherworldly person on the other side of the world who has $700 million. Like that's, you know, that's different from Brandon. I know Brandon. I, I've yeah, sat people on panels are people. with Brandon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. People are people. Right? So here's Brandon, you know, in, in I, I think what a day he had, like, what was the absurd number he made in a single day? Anyway, it was, it, it's, it's, it's like it's, 18 million or something yeah, like that. And then it yeah, went to like 24. Jaw, jaw dropping. And I think he's still going. I think the, the darn thing is still going. Anyway, um, oh gosh, where was I going to go with that thought? I lost my train of thought. I apologize. 
that, anyway, what you're working uh, on next and oh oh yeah i don't know i don't know i i mean um bain has always been very good to me uh i i do uh, talk to craig martell though about the operation he's been running um we're probably going to do some additional books in the xenophobia series um those were fun to do and i think we're going to do more uh i've been talking to uh tony weisskopf at bain about some other projects i'd like to do I, I'm always plugged in fairly closely with Larry Correa, DJ Butler, Mike Coopery, um, and, and a few other Bain authors like Sarah Hoyt. Uh, mm -hmm. And we're always talking about, you know, what we want to work on next, you know, what's going on. Uh, I, I do want to try to put some more stuff into the pages of Analog. Um, uh, it's been too long since I gave them a story. Frankly, uh, you've had a lot of stories that probably would have gone to Analog if, if, if they hadn't have been in your books. So I appreciate that they were in your books um but but i do want to get back to putting some stuff into analog as well i should i would i would be remiss to not do it um analog i know recently pretty much reached out and solicited some more stories they said we really like to see you put some stuff in our pages again so i'm going to do that um hopefully they like what i send them i do have some ideas for some things maybe even some sequels to some stories that were published before again the stories that uh one of them was a cover story. It got a beautiful Bob Eagleton cover uh, called Ray of Light. And it was oh, yeah, I remember that. an underwater science fiction story. Yeah. Um, you know, if you've ever seen the movie, The Abyss, you know, kind of riffing on some themes there. Uh, that was a, 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 a multi-award nominee. And that got me uh, uh, quite, a, quite a lot of good fan mail. And it also got me uh, the, the, my first short story collection. I, I, I was able to get the cover from that uh, magazine and use that for the short story collection um uh, which i called lights in the deep you know i kind of riffed on the title of the story that the chief story in the book um i could follow that up with a sequel i i, I could try to keep going with the chaplain's war stories i've been asked about that i want to keep going with a star wheeled sky because that was originally planned as a trilogy of books um so i want to get number two out there as quickly as possible um granted i am not uh, unfortunately so I describe myself as a high-functioning type B, um, whereas <laughs> my friend Larry Correa is a maniacal type A. Um, you know, it really is a type A's world, and and Larry, like Brandon Sanderson, is a machine. He pounds it, and he pounds it hard, and he's consistent, and he's disciplined. I'm neither consistent nor very disciplined, much to Tony Weisskopf's chagrin, and you've edited me, so you know I'm always a day late and a dollar short with my stories, too. Um, and I apologize for that. <laughs> well, I, I I know how to I know how to I know how to herd cats. I, I know how to manage. I have a little few tricks up my sleeve too that I don't reveal. But. I, I you labor on behalf of uh, fools like me. Anyway, uh, yeah, I've got a lot of irons in the fire, a lot of ideas. I still want to tackle. Um, it, it's kind of fun uh, mixing my military experience with my science fiction ideas. Uh, Again, I'm, my, my roots are very much Larry Niven, Jerry Pornell. And uh, again, I've mentioned Alan Cole and, and Chris Bunch. Alan's, I hate to say it, my mentors are, are leaving us. Uh, Mike Resnick died a few years ago, a couple of years ago, I think. Um, uh, Alan Cole died, uh, it was either shortly before or shortly after Mike. So to, those are two big mentors that are gone. Dave Farland died recently, AKA Dave Wolverton. So all my, my men that taught me how to do this are going and it's it's sobering and i'm sad but um as martin l shoemaker reminded me he said well mm -hmm. you know now we're the old men do don't look now but we are the old men 
we're not a bunch of 25 year olds anymore. We're, we're all in our forties and fifties and now we're the old men. We have to do this. So that's sobering and has me thinking about a lot of things. Um, I'm currently on a set of uh, uh, long-term full-time orders. I'm, I'm a reservist. I've been in the, the Army Reserve the whole time I've been in. Uh, and I'm a chief warrant officer, uh, currently working full-time in Salt Lake City. Um, when I come off those orders in a few years, you know, it, it would be a, a, a delight to be able to do it full-time, meaning the writing, do the writing full-time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of things have to happen between now and then, but I've got time to try to map out a strategy and get a whole bunch of new books and, and stories onto the market. Um, I've always got people writing me good fan mail, which is extremely encouraging for both the stories in your anthologies and for other stories that are. Oh, really? They've written, they've written to you about stories in, in my anthologies. Yeah. 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 I've, I've gotten, I've gotten fan mail on every single story that you've ever published in any of your anthologies, um, which is, which even, is really, even though, really nice. He, even the latest one though because it's i mean it was just out i don't think i don't think that one's been out long enough though but yeah the, the, was, the stuff the stuff prior yeah that's what yeah. Saying. yeah yeah okay yeah yeah the, the one that's newly out no not yet but but the stories prior yes yes um and again like i said i i do have people soliciting for analog and saying hey you should send us some more things we would like that very much so um i'm definitely gonna gonna do that i have plenty of plenty of people asking for stories um it's just a matter of again as a high functioning type b can i fake it long enough trying to pretend i'm larry korea to to produce like i need to and to be timely uh i'm i am trying to to to, to make the second decade of my writing career um i mean really if if i think about it that's in terms of like accolades or prestige i kind of hate that word but you know um winning the dragon uh, the, the, the short fiction awards and analog, you know, the short, uh, story awards, uh, I've, I've gotten a couple of other awards, uh, the local one called the AML, you know, th these things I'm very proud of, very, very proud of, and I'm very gratified, uh, at the reader response and at the, the response of, uh, the judges and, and other things, you know, my writers of the future award. I'm almost most proud of that one because uh, nobody knew who I was, uh, that, that story had to sell itself. Um, kind of like my first story in Analog. Nobody knows who I was for that either. So um, by the time I'd won the Dragon, I'd been around a few years. But for Writers of the Future and for the very first Analog Anlab Award, nobody knew who the heck I was. I, I was a nobody. The story itself had to win over the judges. And in, in the case of Analog, it had to win over the readers. So I'm extremely proud of the very first uh, Anlab and also my Writers of the Future Award because... They, they came right at the beginning and they were in, you know, for me personally, they were hard fought for and, 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 and a surprise when they finally happened and it deeply gratifying when they finally happened. And now for me, it's about uh, productivity and uh, I, I've got more than enough stories in my brain that I would love to tell and I, I want to get it out there, especially since, yeah, my, my mentors are leaving and I'm staring at turning 50 in two years and I'm not a spring chicken anymore either. So it's like, dude, you're not 35 anymore. You need to, you need to get this down. Like, I don't, I don't want to, okay. If I can say this without being too disparaging, I don't want to end up like George R. R. Martin who starts something. Everyone loves it. It goes big. And he cannot for, to save his life, he will, he will not finish uh, 
a song of ice and fire. He will not finish it. He will die before it is finished. It will be passed on to some heir apparent to finish it for him, just like the HBO series had to be finished for him. Um, I think the audience already kind of hates him for how long he's been dragging his feet on this. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to go 10 years between sequels. I don't want to be notorious among my fans for being a sluggard. Now, at the same time, though, if you had that level of success, well, sure, you you can you want to enjoy it a little bit. Right. Yeah, I mean, he has uh, he has fu money, right? He has fu money. Um, what a great problem to have to have fu money. Um, right. I mean, but, the alternative <laughs> the alternative argument is if you have fu money, why aren't you sitting down and doing what you yeah, love? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right? I mean, That's exactly stuff. right. I mean, again, it's too like I don't want to I don't want to beat you know beat the you know beat the guy down, but I you know there's two sides of every coin. Sure, 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 sure. But I I, I don't want to be somebody who who. I, I do think that there is a, not a contract, but there's, when somebody, I've always thought this, when, when a reader chooses to invest money and time in your book or your story, it is an investment and it, you have an obligation. It's kind of a tacit obligation to make that worth their while. Um, I've always felt that way, which is why the, the fan mail is always very gratifying. Um, because I feel like I've done my job. Um, and I don't want to disrespect that. I don't want to, even with the people who are critical, um, I, I had in Analog Magazine uh, a, a very nice PhD take one of my award winners to task. It was a story that had won the Analab, which I'm very proud of. It was called uh, uh, Life Flight. And uh, a lot of people came back to me later and said, how much did they pay you for that story to make the movie Passengers? And I said, that, no, sorry, no, that I didn't get a dime. They're not the same. It's a same, similar concept, but my story and that movie are completely separate. So unfortunately, mm-hmm. I did not get any Hollywood bread on that. And because I'm not Harlan Ellison, I didn't think to sue them to try to extort money either. But uh, for that story, it won the AnLab. I was very proud of that. That was my third AnLab for that story. And then I get this letter in the letters page of Analog a few months later. And he very politely takes me to task for getting my math wrong on the, the, the time to cover distance at X acceleration, speed of light, blah, blah, blah. Now, I'll confess, I'm just a high school grad with maybe 100 odd credits of different college courses. I never cobbled them together into a degree. I was never a whiz at high level math anyway. Anything with letters in it hurts my brain. Um, I always hated advanced algebra and anything beyond that because it was extremely difficult for me. I like to think with my hard science fiction, it's a result of me having metabolized and loved programs like Carl Sagan's Cosmos and things like uh, James Burke's Connections and The Day Mm -hmm. the Universe Changed. You know, when I was a teenager and a young man, I devoured these things and I like to think I've got a good grounding in the concepts and the the rules, right? We live in a universe with rules that uh, one of Larry Niven's, uh, I think it's in his Niven's laws, the universe doesn't care if you're having fun, right? It's, you know, there, there are rules that just won't be broken no matter how much you want to break them. So I think I've got a, a good concept of that, but I hadn't done the math on this particular story. And he very politely took me to task <laughs> on that. So but I, I thanked him later. I, I wrote a, a rejoinder, not really rejoinder, like a rebuttal. It wasn't a rebuttal, but I, in a later 
edition of analog in the letters column, I had responded to him as in the old style of how they used to do it. You know, you respond to the readers in the letters column. And I think when I thanked him for doing the math and I apologized and said, you're right, I, I didn't do my homework enough on this story. But even Larry Niven with the famous Ringworld book didn't do enough homework because everybody figured out that the Ringworld was unstable. They even <laughs> joked about it by making a filk song. You know, the Ringworld is unstable. The Ringworld is unstable. He did the best that he was able and that's good enough for me. So I, I try to live up to at least that level, right? It's like you, you get the basics right. You try to achieve verisimilitude. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if you don't get the math exactly right, that's okay. Someone probably will. And if they're nice about it, they'll, they'll help you out and send you a letter that explains how you got it wrong. And you can maybe, you know, in your next story, you'll, you'll, <laughs> you'll get it a little better. Um, uh, so yeah, I, uh, where was I going with that thought? I've been rambling. I've been talking a lot. Um, no, that's good. Though. That's why we're here. Boy, I've completely lost it. I'm sorry. Uh, where was I going with that thought? Uh, anyway, I guess it doesn't matter. But uh, yeah, I, I, I've got a lot of things I want to do. And, uh, uh, you know, I want to try to make this enterprise um, really, uh, really kick into a, a, a new level. Um, I've, I've talked to DJ Butler about this. I've talked to Mike Cooper. I've talked to a number of other people. And we're all kind of on the same wavelength. Um, of course, we have Larry Correa living in our backyard. Um, highly successful and incredibly productive. Um, you know, he's kind of our hero. Um, and we kind of curse him a little bit at the same time because he's so damn productive and, you know, he's done so well. But of course, he's he's helped us all uh, tremendously too because he's always very willing to promote his friends. He's always very willing to, you know, promote people and, and try to get the word out, which we've all benefited from enormously. And I mean, a lot of people, especially here in the, in the Utah writer community. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't name the number of people that Larry has either helped promote or has helped with advice or both. Um, he, he's an extremely generous guy. Uh, and I'm, I, I count myself lucky to know him. Um, really the, the Utah writer group uh, is, is, is pretty remarkable. Um, and I, I would include even like, like uh, one of my other mentors who's thankfully still with us is uh uh, Lee Modisette, L.E. Modisette Jr. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. So Lee, Lee doesn't get nearly as much hype as Brandon Sanderson or even uh, Dave Wolverton. Now, Dave Wolverton ran a, a series of professional workshops uh, right up till he died. Um, Lee never involved himself in the workshops, but he was always very, very good at offering cogent advice and observations when he was on the panels at things like uh, uh, Salt Lake Comic Con, or especially Life, the Universe, and everything down in Provo. And so Lee and I got to be very cordial. He had been impressed with my work in analog before I ever met him. Um, and so whenever I had a chance to go down to Cedar City for my civilian job, I would, I would try to look him up and we would have lunch. And, and, and Lee is a, a terrific guy, uh, somebody else that I admire a great deal. Um, if, I could, if I could replicate even half of his success, I, I would be so thrilled with it because Lee is another steady producer. He has a very loyal fan base, very loyal fan following. Um, he's done a lot of books. I mean, he's just, he's just doing it the way it should be done. And, and Lee is also a very astute, nice person. He's nobody's fool. Uh, like politically, he's the closest thing I've ever run across to like a, a, a staunch centrist, if there is such a thing. Mm-hmm. Because um, he's very well informed in why he's a centrist, and and he doesn't he doesn't easily 
he's not easily swayed by emotional argument. He's not easily convinced by uh, rhetorical flourish or hyperbole. Um, he's experienced and wise in the ways of the world without being cynical, if that's possible. Mm -hmm. So I, I really like Lee a lot. He's Lee is another good one that I I count among my mentors, and I'm I'm hoping he's going to still be with us for a while. Although again, we're, they're going away, unfortunately. I'm bummed about that. So for new authors, what advice would you leave them with? Oh dear. Um, okay. The present publishing world is a wild west. You have more people writing, <clears throat> excuse me, pardon me. You have more people writing science fiction and fantasy in the English language than ever before. How you stand out in that is a puzzle many of us who've been around a little bit are still trying to figure out. I think you just have to be disciplined in your production. Um, you have to have some goals, whether you're going to pursue traditional publishing or you're going to pursue indie publishing or you're going to be a hybrid like me. I think you have to be open-minded in what you're willing to change about your craft or your practice. I, I don't think anybody is beyond learning new things. Um, I definitely would always advocate Writers of the Future as a terrific way to get started. Uh, the contest mm -hmm. is, is wonderful and is run by some wonderful people. Um, I used to go down there uh, uh, from like 2010 to 2014. I would go down every year as, as a returning winner who was doing fairly well, you know, new, new guy doing, he's coming up in the world, blah, blah, blah. So I would go down and, and kind of walk the new winners through their week. The workshop is a week long. If you win, you not only get the prize money and the trophy and all that stuff, but you also get a workshop. It's a week long workshop. Brandon Sanderson and all these other pros will talk to you at length about, you know, their advice for new people. Um, so I always advocate entering writers of the future. Uh, I, I would say more than anything, maybe um, not all advice is created equal. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and something else Brandon Sanderson is fond of saying, which is you will never lack for advice. Um, there are a million and one people willing to tell you how to do it. If you look for somebody who to be a mentor, um, you know, look at the people who are doing what you think you want to do, whatever that happens to be. Short fiction, books, science fiction, fantasy, a hybrid of those things. Uh, find the people who are good at that and and ask them for advice, be kind about it, don't demand. Uh, or if, if they've if they're running workshops or if they're doing something like uh, Kevin G. Anderson has the Superstars writing seminar that he does out in Colorado Springs. Um, I've been to that a couple times as a as an attendee, and then I was uh, I returned a couple times later as a not a graduate, but uh, kind of like an up and coming pro. Um, you know, that's terrific business advice. That's the other thing is uh, I would advise new aspiring authors to to get good at as, or at least as good as they can be at being their own best business person. Mm -hmm. um, teach yourself not only how to do your taxes, but teach yourself how to, how to, you know, meter your expenses and gauge your, you know, time spent X number of words generated from X number of hours versus income, you know, get good at spreadsheets and start spreadsheeting your stuff, because that's really going to tell you, is it, is it worth your while? Um, are you getting good return on your investment of time. Um, and again, I, I don't think anybody's above learning 
So please be flexible and, and be willing to learn. Um, the other thing I would probably say is uh, avoid, how do I put it? Uh, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Uh, again, when it comes to advice, like like Brandon said, you'll, you'll never lack for it. So, you know, be, be, be discerning. Um, and also, you know, let yourself, there's the, there's the million words rule or the 10,000 hour rule. Um, sometimes as it's applied to musicians where supposedly it takes 10,000 hours of practice to get, you know, entry level professional quotes at, you know, playing an instrument. I, I think in my case, that was true for writing for sure. It, when mm -hmm. I won Writers of the Future, I added it up. I think I'd written on the order of like 850,000 words of unpublished and for good reason. The, the old stories and the old books were not any good. They were definitely, you could tell it was beginner work, but that was me teaching myself how to do it. And I, I sometimes fear with indie allowing people to immediately publish the very first thing they write that people aren't, people aren't giving themselves, how do I put it? People aren't letting themselves go through the the painful maturation process that us old schoolers had to go through. And I think there's some value in that. I think there's some value in struggling. I think there's some value in realizing that the first thing that flies out of your fingertips is not that good in most cases. Mm -hmm. I've, I've actually argued this with people who want to say, no, no, it's brilliant. It's like, no, your first thing, it might feel like it when it's coming out of your hands into the keyboard, but it's probably not brilliant. It's it, it's probably not up to snuff. And and yet people are constantly putting that stuff on Amazon, and then they wonder why it only moves a few copies, and they get very discouraged, or they start saying, "Well, it's all slanted." Blah blah. You know, there's all kinds of reasons why it's not selling. Well, the one that doesn't get talked about often enough is, you know, if this was literally the first thing you ever wrote, you're probably not that good at telling stories yet. It takes mm -hmm. some takes some practice. You gotta hone honing you gotta you gotta put some work into it so don't be surprised if your first product or your first stories or your first books aren't that great um and especially if you put them to market and you don't get a, a good market response it might not be anything other than you're just not that good at it and that's fine let yourself not be good at it yeah. for a few years until you are good at it um so there's my there's my advice i think yeah hopefully people find that worthwhile all right. Well, I appreciate you spending a long, long period of time with me on this call. And I definitely would you know, hope you join us again at some point in the future. Yeah, I would love to. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon, my friend. Bye.